Welcome to the Charleston Time Machine. I'm Nick Butler, historian at the Charleston County Public Library. How well do you know the neck? Perhaps you know a bit, and you're open to learning more about its history and its present challenges. Or perhaps you're confused by this strange anatomical reference and have no clue what I'm talking about. In today's program, I'll try to sweep aside the mystery by focusing on the origin and the evolving definition of Charleston Neck, that curious stretch of no man's land bounded by the rivers Ashley and Cooper and squeezed between the urban centers of Charleston and North Charleston. It's not just a neglected part of our local history. It's also a big part of our community's future. Ask anyone around Charleston County to define the neck, and you're likely to get a variety of answers. For some folks, the neck means the skinniest part of the peninsula between the Ashley and Cooper Rivers around, say, Rosemont neighborhood or Union Heights. Some people might think of Magnolia Cemetery and the other large burial grounds in that neighborhood. Hipsters might take note of the presence of several new businesses, including craft breweries, tattoo parlors, and even a skateboard park. Most of us probably know the Neck as a landscape of abandoned industrial sites littered with the contaminated vestiges of bygone phosphate processing. A 1960s concrete highway carries thousands of cars every day over the Neck, high above a landscape that's been charred and scarred. In fact, the Neck is the sum of all of these parts, and much more, but its story is rarely included in the mainstream conversations about the history of our community. History books generally describe Charleston Neck as a sort of vacuum, a disorderly, unincorporated no-man's land lurking ominously beyond the northern boundary of the more genteel city of Charleston. In reality, however, the Neck did have a government of sorts during the 19th century, an elected board of commissioners, and I've been collecting information related to their earnest efforts to enforce law and order. But before we delve into that political quagmire, we need to begin with a solid understanding of the geography of the neck and the evolving definition of its physical boundaries. We'll save the details of its government and its reputation for future programs. Charleston Neck, in geographical terms, is simply a peninsula, a long, narrow tongue of land surrounded on three sides by water. There are many necks in our nation, including, for example, Great Neck, New York, Bristol Neck, Rhode Island, and Scotland Neck, North Carolina. Closer to home here in South Carolina, we also have Graham's Neck in Jasper County, Britain's Neck in Marion County, and, of course, Wando Neck in what is now part of suburban Mount Pleasant. Charleston Neck isn't a unique geographical phenomenon, of course, but there seems to be little consensus about the precise definition of its boundaries. That seemed odd to me, and so I did some digging into the historical record, and here's what I found. Over the past 350 years, nearly, there have been five different definitions of the Neck in the lexicon of Metro Charleston. The geographic identity of the Neck evolved in step with the growth of the local population and with the rise of commercial development. So let's look at the evidence of each definition 
starting from the earliest days of the Carolina colony. Definition 1. The Whole Neck of Land In the spring of 1670, a small group of English folks settled on the west bank of the Ashley River at a place they called Albemarle Point, now Charlestown Landing State Park. A few months later, one of these settlers described their campsite as being located on a small neck of land, surrounded by creeks and marshes. In the spring of 1671, another settler observed that across from Albemarle Point, there was a larger neck of land, located between two broad rivers. That larger neck, situated between the Ashley and Cooper Rivers, acquired the name Oyster Point before the end of 1671, when John Culpepper drew the first map of the nascent English settlement. In the summer of 1672, our governor ordered the surveyor general to lay out a new town at Oyster Point, complete with a grid of streets and over 300 half-acre lots. There were already a few families living somewhere on Oyster Point Neck by 1672, but not necessarily within the bounds of the planned town. Surveyors laid out the grid of lots and streets on the ground sometime between 1672 and 1678, at which time the settlement of Oyster Point Town began in earnest. In 1679, the leaders of the colony decided that the new town on the neck of land between the Ashley and the Cooper Rivers was more commodious and more defensible than Albemarle Point, so they ordered a change. In the spring of 1680, the little town at Oyster Point officially became the seat of government in South Carolina and simultaneously became New Charlestown. Maurice Matthews, an early settler who described the new town in glowing terms that year, also mentioned the neck on which the town was placed. In a letter dated May 18, 1680, Matthews noted that, in addition to the inhabitants of the new town, there were about 115 men and their families settled within five miles of the town upon the same neck. These facts about the initial settlement of Colonial Charlestown underscore the relationship between the Neck and what is now the city of Charleston. Today, we tend to think of Charleston and Charleston Neck as distinct entities, one urban and the other suburban and even rural. But historically, the Neck and the city have always been interdependent and connected, inhabiting the same geographic space since the 1670s. In the earliest days of the Carolina colony, the definition of the neck encompassed all of the peninsula, or tongue of land, between the Ashley and Cooper Rivers, from the southernmost tip of White Point to a point several miles to the northwest. More specifically, the original northern boundary of the neck was synonymous with the northern boundary of the parish of St. Philip. Now that seems like a simple enough definition, but where exactly is the northern boundary of the parish of St. Philip? The parishes of early South Carolina were officially created in 1706 as geographic precincts administered by the Church of England, but they also functioned as electoral districts until the new state constitution of 1868 swept aside the parishes in favor of a county electoral system. Prior to its dissolution, the northern line of the parish of St. Philip 
converged with the southwestern corner of the parish of St. James Goose Creek and the easternmost corner of the parish of St. Andrew, at a point that is today somewhere within the heart of the modern city of North Charleston. But where? The northern boundary of the parish of St. Philip was first defined in October of 1698, before the parish even had a name. At that time, the provincial legislature ordered that the first minister of the first Anglican church in Charleston would be supported by taxes imposed on the people residing in Charlestown and the neck between the Cooper and Ashley River, as far up as John Byrd's plantation on the Cooper River and Christopher Smith's plantation on Ashley River inclusive. Those two plantations were also mentioned as the landmarks of St. Philip when the parish was first officially named in the South Carolina Legislature's Church Act of 1704, which the Lord's Proprietors of Carolina disallowed in 1705. In the revised Church Act of 1706, the provincial legislature again named John Byrd's plantation on the Cooper River and Christopher Smith's plantation on the Ashley River as the northernmost landmarks within the parish of St. Philip. So, where are these plantations located? A century ago, Henry Augustus Middleton Smith the most prolific and meticulous property researcher of early 20th century Charleston, published a detailed study of dozens of old plantations on the neck. Smith traced the chain of title for the tracts belonging to both Christopher Smith and John Byrd, but he didn't take the time to determine or describe their precise locations. Now, I don't have the time to dive down that rabbit hole either, so I turned to other records in search of some useful details. I found that by the turn of the 19th century, the precise location of the boundary line wasn't clear to anyone who lived in that rural wooded area. In December of 1811, the South Carolina legislature appointed a group of men to ascertain and establish the boundary line of St. Philip's Parish. This weekend, I'm headed to Columbia to look at an 1813 legislative report on their findings, so for the moment, I'm forced to look elsewhere for answers. According to a tax assessor's notice published in the spring of 1815, the parish of St. Philip extended northward up to and including a wayside tavern known as the Six Mile House. At that time, the Six Mile House was run by the notorious couple, John and Lavinia Fisher, who were hanged in 1820 for robbing a number of their house guests. A few years later, in 1825, Robert Mills published his Atlas of South Carolina, which included a detailed map of the parishes contained within Charleston District. On that map, just north of the Six Mile House and a major fork in the road, you'll see the parish boundary indicated by a dashed line drawn across the neck. So, where is that fork, and what are the names of those roads? For the first century of Charleston's existence, there was just one road leading from urban Charleston northward into the countryside. Traditionally called the Broad Path, or the Broad Road, or the High Road, or the Highway, this main road was really the northward extension of King Street, 
which led north out of Charleston and traced a meandering route as it followed the path of high land along the length of the flat, marshy neck. At the northern limit of the parish of St. Philip, where it met the southwestern point of the parish of St. James, Goose Creek, and the easternmost point of the parish of St. Andrew, the broad path forked. To the left, the road continued westward into St. Andrew's Parish, towards the town of Dorchester. The other fork was really just the continuation of the broad path, leading in a northwesterly direction towards Goose Creek. That ancient intersection, marking the northern edge of the parish of St. Philip, also marks the end of the neck. Where is that today? Well, believe it or not, it's hiding in plain sight among the suburban sprawl of North Charleston, at the intersection of Dorchester Road and Meeting Street Road, formerly called the Broad Path, until it was renamed in 1786. So, the modern North Charleston neighborhoods of Cherokee and Charleston Heights, the Cooper River Memorial Library, and the southeastern part of the old U.S. Navy base are all located just within the parish of St. Philip, while the neighborhoods of Whipper Barony and Park Circle and the northwestern part of the old Navy base are just within the parish of St. James Goose Creek. Moments ago, I mentioned a tavern called the Six Mile House that once stood near the fork in the road at the northern edge of the neck. At that site, there was also once a Six Mile Stone, one of many landmark stones erected in colonial times at specific intervals along the broad path leading to and from Charleston. There was once also a four-mile stone, a five-mile stone, and so on, continuing in sequence into the countryside. Just this week, the kind folks at Richard Marks Restorations, Inc. shared with me a photo of the four-mile stone, which they are preparing for display at the South Carolina Historical Society's new museum inside the old fireproof building at 100 Meeting Street, which opens on the 22nd of September, 2018. This stone, which probably dates from the late 18th century, once stood along the side of the broad path on the neck, informing travelers that it was four miles to Charleston Courthouse. Today, all you'll find at that site is a short stub of a street on the neck called Four Mile Lane. Definition 2. The Neck Above the Original Town Boundary The so-called Grand Model of Colonial Charleston, which established a grid of streets and lots in the 1670s, also created the first boundary line between the town and the rest of the neck. From the late 1670s to the late 1760s, that boundary was an imaginary line running along a roughly east-west axis from the Ashley to the Cooper River. That imaginary line now runs along the south side of Bufane Street, which was created by the subdivision of Harleston in 1770, and is continued eastwardly a bit south of Hazel Street, which was created by the subdivision of Rutsbury in the early 1770s. Now, I'm calling it an imaginary line because urban Charlestown remained quite small for many decades, and its northern boundary existed more as a concept on paper than as a tangible reality. In December of 1720, for example, 
Governor James Moore observed that the town line was now with great difficulty found out and would soon be again lost without effectual care be taken to establish and ascertain the same. Although Governor Moore recommended the legislature appoint surveyors to settle and mark the town line and to declare it a felony to remove the said line after it has been surveyed and found to be the true line, the South Carolina legislature deferred the topic for more than a decade and let the confusion fester. In the 1720s, the boundary between Charlestown and the Neck was technically what you and I would recognize as Bufane and Hazel Street, but in reality, there were hardly any houses north of Queen Street. After South Carolina became a royal colony in 1730, however, the inhabitants of Charlestown experienced an unprecedented degree of stability and prosperity that triggered a period of rapid growth. By 1736, the town had definitely expanded, and the streetscapes were definitely becoming denser. Around that same time, the surveyor general finally marked the town boundary with a stone, and advertisements in the newspapers of Charlestown began making a clearer distinction between the new urban street called King Street and the rural broad path or highway on the neck. Bishop Roberts' 1739 map, titled The Ichnography of Charlestown at High Water, provides the first clear depiction of the line separating the town from the neck, and it's even labeled as the Charlestown Line. In that map, the solitary road leading from the countryside to town is called the Highway. But south of the town line, that same thoroughfare is identified as King Street, On the right edge of the map, representing the neck outside of the town, you can also see Colonel William Rett's plantation, known as Rettsbury or Rett's Point, and George Anson's plantation, called the Bowling Green, both of which are on the east side of the highway. Today, we know these plantations as the neighborhood of Ansonboro, which most folks identify as being right in the heart of urban Charleston. In fact, it was the transformation of George Anson's plantation in the middle of the 18th century that led to the next redefinition of the neck. Definition 3. The Neck Above Boundary Street The next big change in the identity of Charleston Neck occurred several years before the American Revolution, as a result of the first wave of suburban development on the peninsula. To grasp the chain of evidence for this story, we have to back up to August of 1721 when the South Carolina General Assembly ratified a Highway Act that created a Board of Commissioners of High Roads in each parish in the colony. In the parish of St. Philip, the only high road was the northward extension of King Street, the broad path that led from the town up the neck and into the other parishes. The commissioners of the high roads for the parish of St. Philip had very little jurisdiction over the streets of urban Charlestown, which experienced a significant construction boom in the 1730s and the 1740s. As the town grew denser, developers for the first time began to look northward, beyond the town line, for new real estate. 
the residential subdivision of George Anson's pasture land called Ansonboro began in 1745 with a grid of new streets and dozens of new suburban lots for sale on the east side of the broad path. As the town grew denser and the population increased into the 1740s, residents began clamoring for better public services in unincorporated Charlestown. The streets had become crowded and filthy, filled with animals, wheel ruts, and potholes. Something had to be done, but there was no form of town government to answer the call. In May of 1750, the South Carolina General Assembly ratified an act that created a new board of commissioners to superintend the streets of urban Charlestown. In a roundabout way, This act literally paved the way for the physical expansion of the unincorporated town's civic boundary and simultaneously laid the groundwork for the future incorporation of Charleston. It's a fascinating document that has never been published, but we'll save the details for a later program. Meanwhile, back to the next story. The Act of 1750 empowered the new street commissioners to raise a new and additional tax essentially a town tax on all urban properties in Charlestown that abutted a public street for the purpose of creating and maintaining those urban streets. As old streets were extended and new streets created after 1750, the owners of properties abutting these new streets became liable to pay the additional town tax. As a result of this process, the physical boundaries of urban Charlestown expanded to the north and to the west in a series of dramatic episodes. In 1767, the residents of the suburb of Ansonboro successfully petitioned the provincial legislature to extend Meeting Street northward from Cumberland Street, created in 1747, to George Street, created in 1745. Two years later, in 1769, Those same suburban residents petitioned the legislature to create a new cross street on the northern edge of Ansonboro, stretching from the broad path eastward to the Cooper River. The creation of this new street, called Boundary Street at that time, represented the first unofficial but very practical step of annexing part of the neck into the town. In the autumn of 1769, however, Boundary Street only existed to the east of the Broad Path, or King Street. That anomaly changed in the spring of 1770 when the South Carolina legislature ratified another act to lay out and adopt several new streets to the northwest of Charlestown in a new neighborhood called Cummings Point, or Harleston. The northernmost line of that new suburb was a path called Manago Street, which stretched from the intersection of Boundary Street and the Broad Path westward to the Ashley River. At some unknown point during the American Revolution, the name Manago Street disappeared, and the entire path across the neck between the Ashley and the Cooper Rivers became known as Boundary Street. As its name implies, the creation of Boundary Street, now called Calhoun Street, was a redefinition of the division between the town and the neck. 
for all practical purposes, the legislative acts of 1769 and 1770 represent the annexation of the southernmost part of the Neck into the higher tax bracket of urban Charlestown. The town remained an unincorporated entity until 1783, however, so there was no municipal charter to amend and no increase of corporate responsibilities. Only the commissioners of streets, created in 1750, noticed an expansion of their responsibilities and their tax base. In short, the perceived geographic scope of the neck definitely shrank during the wave of prosperity and expansion in the years just before the American Revolution. But the legal definition of the neck did not officially change until after the war. The statute confirming the incorporation of the city of Charleston, ratified by the South Carolina General Assembly in August of 1783, formally and legally recognized Boundary Street as the city's northern limit. From that moment onward, the advent of municipal government in Charleston gradually sharpened the economic and cultural distinctions between the city and the neck. In the ensuing decades, the relationship between the urban, highly regulated, dense population of the city and the highly unregulated, sparse population of the neck began to deteriorate. Born as siblings sharing a narrow tongue of land, the city and the neck developed a kind of unhealthy, cantankerous rivalry in the early 19th century that lasted well into the late 20th century. That's the subject of next week's episode, when we'll pick up the story in the late 1780s and stretch the geographic definition of the neck up to the present day. CCPL is your home for local history. If you'd like to learn more about our resources, discover upcoming programs, or just explore the Charleston Time Machine, check out the library's website at ccpl.org. Thanks for joining me aboard the Charleston Time Machine. This is Nick Butler, and I'll see you in the future.